Welcome to this week's episode of Movie Magpies, where we will be discussing Sicario. I'm Monique, uh, here with my co-host Will. How about we just get right into it? Alright, so for the people listening, you ideally have watched Sicario, or at the very least you're not worried about it being spoiled. So, at this point, we shouldn't, we won't need to worry about spoiling anything for you, but going forward... Oh. I was just going to say, our usual warnings spoilers we will be discussing the film in depth no I, i'd like to assume that people know at this point know that we will be spoiling it and i like to be altruistic and still give them the warning <laughs> yeah that's fair enough it's good of you but either way it doesn't matter people know that the spoilers have been warned and if you don't know what this film is basically the summary is an fbi agent takes part in an undercover operation targeting a mexican drug lord but her ethics are challenged when the sting crosses the line and i think that's a really good description purely because there are no good good guys and there are only just really bad bad guys throughout the film we barely even get to see the bad guys they're this invisible enemy throughout it so we almost latch villainous attributes to our protagonists which i find really interesting isn't unwarranted i suppose you could say there are a few very very shady acts uh, even by our protagonists in this movie i i love i love this film which is surprising because you obviously speak about this film very highly. You're a bit yeah. of a fanboy when it comes to anything Roger Deakins. I do love Roger Deakins' stuff, yes. So going into this film, I had lower expectations just because I knew how much of a bias you had towards it. Yeah. And of course I trust you and um, your opinion usually lines up with mine in the way of films. There's not a lot of times that we disagree. Sure. But I did sort of go into it with lower expectations because I was like, oh, all right, this is going to be like a very fancy film like will is pretty obsessed with it and then watching it i was like oh no i get it like i understand where he's coming from and long term this is the the cost of doubting me because ultimately this film is very watchable for most people it's not an artsy film college major kind of film it's it's just a really good fucking film to watch Generally. Which is very true. I think, of course, before we get into any full-on discussions, I do want to, again, give our warning for graphic depictions of violence, yes. nudity, and Josh Brolin's toes. Yeah, so actually, there's a nice little story about that that I wanted to bring up because it's completely unrelated to anything, but it's a nice little bit of, it's a nice little bit of just background dressing to the actual world around it, and also a big reason why I God, I love Roger Deakins' work, and Roger Deakins just comes across as this rock star in the cinematography world. And, like, look, get get comfortable, because this is what most of this episode's going to be fucking about. But Josh Brolin originally declined his role in this film. He declined it, like, two times, and it's because he didn't really want to show his feet on the screen. As we know, in this film, Josh Brolin is in it, and he shows his feet. And it's because... Josh Brolin received an email from Roger Deakins who was who had signed on to be the DOP director of photography for those who don't know signed on to be the DOP for this film and he emailed Josh and said stop being a twat do this film <laughs> and he was like well I can't really you know there's no counter to that Roger Deakins emailed me specifically to, to do this film I have to do it and he did I mean, there's also added stuff when he, Josh went out drinking with some soldiers to f- fully get an idea of what was going on 
in this world, border patrol so uh, officers and stuff like that, and that's what made him sign on, because with that in mind, it's a very compelling story. And for this film, it is it is this incredibly compelling story that most people would not really come across in their general life. This tension on the border of America and Mexico. We don't hear about it, especially not in Australia, but we don't hear about it just in general, and it's often covered up as a bunch of political mess. But there's so much more to it, and this film really does a great job of showing us the, the gritty reality of it, and what ignoring it has done so up until this point. I really do agree with you. This is mm. this is a film that's... Yes, it's a film that everybody could watch, of course, keeping in mind our warnings for um, violence and such. It is still a film that could be enjoyed by like a majority of people. It's not one of those ones that you really have to be into movies and film as a concept to yeah. enjoy. Yet it's so nuanced. There's so many little through lines because of a lot of storytelling. Because a lot of the storytelling is visual, yeah. it's it's really, really easy to miss details that were put into this film. Yeah. But was... also, oh, yeah, those sorry, details just enrich the movie itself, Yeah, especially once you've realised them. I think I, of course, had a bit of a cheat sheet, because even if I did miss things, you being a fan of this movie and having seen it multiple times were more than willing to explain to me yeah. certain things that were I took pride in me. it. Yeah. <laughs> in breaking it, was, it down. Oh gosh, it was such a fun watching of this movie, honestly, just yeah. chilling and talking to you while we uh, watched it. But is Movie Magpie's guide to watching this film. Watch it with me. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I was going to say, with you bringing up the, the visual storytelling, we've talked about it at length, I think it's a majority of what we talk about in the review, but yes. this film is so easy to follow because it has this visual storytelling narrative and so much of the exposition is reinforced and held up by the visual storytelling to the point where it's this film is just really easy to follow and there are no misconceptions really with it whereas films that are far more verbal exposition based can often fall into the issue of having multiple interpretations because people can misinterpret verbal exposition because they may not fully understand it or it's not said in a tone that aligns with their context whereas I this, actually yeah. I actually want to on that point hark back to when we watched I Am Mother I yes. think one of our critiques was we were given a lot of information through exposition but it was all so vague that it was yeah. incredibly easy to misinterpret yeah. or just somehow not enough information despite the sort of exposition dump this movie is the complete opposite not a lot is said and not a lot of exposition is given through audio like a yeah. lot of it is visual even the music doesn't like is used sparsely yeah absolutely so it in fact is the opposite way where it's incredibly clear what's going on because mm. there's so many details just to look at that it's very hard to misinterpret a scene. Yeah, absolutely. This film, of course, does that really well, and with the, the contrast to I Am Mother, where pretty much everything is said, but not everything is said clearly, everything is made abundantly clear in this film. The focus, if the focus pulls onto something in frame, like, because we can spoil stuff, a, a band that's been wrapped around 
wads of money, laundered money, you know, oh, this is important, I should remember that. Something in this frame is important. Oh, this colourful, what looks like a charity band? Yeah, yeah, it's like one of those silicon bands that yeah. you would get for supporting a charity or, like, running a marathon. Or yeah, but it's like, oh, this visually stimulating image, this little thing that I can see very clearly, that's probably going to be important. And then it is important, and you're like, oh, cool, I'm rewarded for paying attention. And that's why this film is so easy to watch and so enjoyable to watch is because you're rewarded for paying attention and it makes you it's, feel smart because you're you, watching oh whereas gosh, like I a mother little... made you feel stupid because you were pay, paying attention mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. I mean I suppose I would hark this back to like putting little M&Ms or jelly beans like as rewards as you're yeah. studying something because Absolutely. every time you remember an important point there oh gosh Am I going to get this right? My brain just wants to say Pavlov's gun. Pavlov's dog? No, the other one. Chekhov's, Chekhov's gun. gun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Look what you've done to me, Will. Yeah. But with Chekhov's gun, like, there's never a detail on screen that you would pick up on and be like, oh, that looks important, that isn't then harked back to later. Yeah. Which is incredibly rewarding. It's, every, it's yeah. definitely like getting a treat every time something comes back and you're like, oh, I remember that. That's important. And specifically with the bands in the way that they come back the visual storytelling is so dang good it gives me chills watching that scene we uh, see the bands wrapped around money and then uh, later on Kate is getting a little hot and heavy (laughs) yes with another character and as they're sort of laying on the couch you know doing adult things we pan down to the mirrored coffee table and on the mirrored coffee table is one of those bands and through the coffee table's mirrored surface we get to see Kate's reaction. Oh yeah, that's fucking that incredible, isn't it? It gives me chills yeah. to watch that thing. Because like so much of so much of scenes where we know what's gonna happen or we get a glimpse of what's there because the band is actually not in focus when we see Kate's it's the first time. Yeah, where we see Kate's face. Uh, oh, yeah, we true. see her reaction first and then the band, but you can see the colours clearly, so you know what's going to happen, you know what this is, you know what this little band is, you're not like, oh, it's just Play-Doh in this guy's pocket, it's it's the band, you know, specifically. So the most important part about this is not that you see the band, it's that you see, her, see Kate's reaction. And they do this really well in a previous scene when they're debriefing, where so little of the debriefing room is actually shown, it's mostly Kate's face and her reactions to it so you actually feel like a like a fish out of water in this scene because we are spending so much time focusing on the reactions of Kate Mesa as opposed to getting the verbal exposition of the scene and I think that's it's really interesting and really cool how they do that I was going to say with the bands that's a really good example of it because it's the most prevalent one and it's the one with the best payoff but one of the ones that I also noticed prior to that which I actually thought was just as good if not better because it's actually slightly less obvious or overt is when well when they've gotten Guillermo which if you don't know Guillermo is Spanish for Will which is fun for me but when they've got Guillermo in a holding cell and they're trying to get information out of him and then we see Alejandro get some water from the water cooler he doesn't just get some water from the water cooler. He takes, like, a whole water cooler jug. Well, no, him. here's the thing. This is the point that I actually want to point out. 
the first bit we see is we actually see him pour in water into a cup and then drink it and then he has that conversation with the lawyer mm-hmm. and then he he reaches down and grabs something but because we're right next to the water cooler we already know exactly what it is without having to see it and i think that's that's visual storytelling at its best because we don't see the water cooler in his hands we see it once he's come into the room, but we already know what's in his hands because of the weight of what he's lifting, because he's right next to a water cooler with a half-filled water cooler, well, a water jug in it, so you know it's gonna be replaced soon, and you're given all this visual evidence, and if you piece it together, you feel really smart because you know what's gonna happen, and you get that little extra piece of anticipation just before it happens. So it's just so wonderful to see that done so well. There's also the audio of when he's walking. Like, it's not yeah. noticeable, like, just unless you're really looking for it, but the sloshing. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. Mm, I Super just, good. Mm. <laughs> and I would say that's probably Denise Villeneuve's storytelling and writing, or Taylor Sheridan's writing specifically. I don't. I'm not going to give Roger Deakins all the credit, even though I want to, but it's very much this... It's just some perfectly written visual storytelling that pays off perfectly because it it maintains this course constantly throughout the film where you're not told the answers, you're shown the answers or shown the evidence and you can put the answer together and then when you see the answer you feel smarter and you feel so much happier for getting to see that ahead of time which is just so awesome. It's such awesome filmmaking that it's hard not to gush about. Mm-hmm. And I think another sort of good attribute of the way that that works and the way that you can piece it together with the visual clues before the scene, it also means that a lot of times, even if we are in a very tense situation and they're building the tension and you know something bad is about to happen, you almost get prepared for it in advance because yeah. almost every large moment in the film is sort of preceded by a few or you know one or two scenes where you can piece together what's about to happen yes. just before it does which makes it a little easier to swallow some of the violence that's in yeah. this film and I the would, only no, times yeah, sorry, that i find that those sort of you know violent depictions and a couple of the more upsetting themes in this are hard to swallow is when there's not that same level of like visual clues beforehand yeah and i think that's a very fair thing to state i think what's really great about this is also that because of the visual evidence you're provided with the tension in this film is so nicely compact without the visual evidence but if you gather the visual evidence beforehand it draws it out but it never feels any less impactful because the pacing is just done so well in that you're you're brought up to these points every single time and you just you're preparing for what's to come and it always pays off really well it never draws out too long it's never too short in sections of tension that it ends up being really enjoyable no matter how much how much you can gather from a viewing every single time one thing i forgot to tell you about about this film is that when it came out it was considered one of the most tension inducing films of its time oh really yeah so the Specifically, the border scene, which I think everyone who's seen this film can agree, is incredibly tense, is considered one of the most tense scenes in film so far. And I'd say, yeah, I get that. It's mm-hmm. an incredibly no, tense scene. It makes that. total sense. 
Speaking of the border scene in yes. general, yeah, one of the things that I really love about this film, and I think you'll agree with me here, the car rides are done very well. They feel chaotic and bumpy yeah. without actually having chaotic and bumpy camera work. It's yeah. a really fine line between taking that chaotic, bumpy, obviously very fast-paced driving scene and still making it visually appealing where you're not getting motion sickness. Yeah, it's the not disorientating. The shaking around. It's not too hard to focus on what's happening because of the movement of the scene. It's really well done. And mm. as someone who kind of gets a bit headachy if I can't focus on something properly, it's really, really awesome to see that, yes, you don't just have to have like a shaky camera and yeah. some really, really hard turns and jump cuts to make something feel chaotic. It's very easy. A lot of, I yeah. suppose, what would I'm you trying say, to say here. Would you say yeah. that the fact that the camera remains, for the most part, quite stable while the car, well, while the trucks aren't quite as stable helps build that sense of immersion without it being disorientating? Yes, that's a hundred percent. Exactly. And another thing that I want to say about just the shots in this film is a lot of fast-paced moments in this film still have quite slowed down frames. Like, even if something is tense and it's moving very quickly and it feels very frantic, the shots aren't any shorter. I mean, they probably are, but they're still quite lengthy. You still get time to take in all the visuals. And I think that's just because everything is very, we keep saying, there's a lot of visual storytelling in this film and I think that's why it's able to build that tension and that quickness and that sort of rush without actually just jumping from frame to frame because there's so much for your eyes to focus on visually that even if a scene is slightly longer you still get that same like fast-paced tension because there's just so much to pick up on in the scene and there's so much to focus your eyes on it's yeah really the fact the fact that this film takes its times time with frames isn't to its detriment because it has enough within each frame for you to be looking at and to be taking in that the the slower the slower pacing actually works to its betterment where joker's pacing slow down almost doesn't work for it in the same way that there's just so much to look at within each frame even if there's minimal visual space for for frames that you're still taking in so much and learning so much about what's going on in Sicario that you're you're still occupied with imagery and visual literacy and all of that. I want to move on partially away from the visual storytelling just to the visual style. Mm-hmm. Just being that the visual style is very specific. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. done it looks the way it does because it lends well to the story because in terms of color palette it's it's, it never changes too much it's always quite uniform in that its palette is mostly yellows and mostly the sandy kind of textury kind of browns with a few pale blues as you said in the review but what is quite unique about this film is that its use of framing and its use of light is what sets the cinematography apart. I actually had a question for you regarding the visuals and because the colours are so contained, I suppose it's got a very, very minimal colour palette and it still feels very vibrant. Like, you don't feel like there's any missing colours. 
But one of my questions for you is, what do you think the symbolism of the blue on specific characters is? Because I think there's really only three characters, maybe four, that wear blue throughout the film of varying shades. But it's really interesting to me the way that that's used. And I think it was one of those things that we were discussing in like while we were watching the movie. That like, do you, what do you think about the way that they use specifically the blue clothing in this film? So that's a kind of a symbolism question, which is fair enough. It's use of colour for blue, I think, is probably more specifically tailored to, in an annoying way, justice, in that justice is probably the word that I'm looking for. Cops are dressed, American cops are wearing blue, that kind of a symbolism there. But I think it's far less obvious than that, where the characters who are most by the book are often in blue, and or by the code, uh wearing blue so we've got our main character Kate who starts out in blue and then progressively wears more beige but still with the blue shirt underneath it to the point where Daniel Kaluuya's character Reggie actually points that out where she's she never changes her shirt and that she's kind of like she's just a filthy mess at one point which is a hilarious you know conversation between the two but it is an interesting distinction that he points out where she is always wearing that blue shirt and it's kind of it kind of does fade with the film as it goes on. Mm. Daniel Kaluuya's character Reggie, he's very much by the book and he, since he has so little time within the film, he is consistently wearing the blue. And as I spoke about in the review, his by-the-book nature ends up almost being a stopping point in the story where we're almost forced to stop and find out a great deal more than we knew or that we were being told, but also the progression of the story comes to a halt as well. Who's the third one? Because I I feel like those were the two ones that I focused on. It's the police officer that we get the sort of domestic hints of. Um, we see him in his blue oh, uniform. Oh, right, yeah, Pop Dad, as I called him. why I say almost four is just because there are a few moments where Alejandro isn't necessarily wearing blue, but he's wearing, like, a very... Yeah. It almost looks black, but to me, it, because of the visuals of the film, it looks like a deep blue blazer. Yeah. Sort of when we first meet him, and then after that, he doesn't really wear it again. But. Yeah, well, I think... Actually, that leads on to a really good distinction where with the cop dad and Alejandro, it's no, their use of blue is no longer about justice or the law or anything like that or following the book. It's about the code. And for both of them, they have a very strong sense of morality with cop dad, because I didn't get his name down, but cop dad, he has a very strong connection to his family in that his family motivates him to do things the way that he does them. Maybe even though they're not necessarily moral, it's keeping his family alive and supported. And then Alejandro, he has a very clear code and it's overshadowed by the tan of the sand and the desert, the tan suit that he wears all the time. And just because that's the world that they live in and Josh Brolin's character, Matt, always wears the tan so he's just fully ingrained into that world, but I think with Alejandro, he's more focused on his code while also maintaining to the world, if that is the symbolism. I think with symbolism, if it's never explicitly said, then it's never confirmed. I'm not explaining these points as gospel or as certainty, but I think if that's 
a way of looking at it symbolically, that's one way of certainly looking at it. And as much as obviously we can't confirm or deny that that is actually what the blue stands for as symbolism, I really do love the way that the blue is used in this film. Yeah, it's a nice and scattering throughout, throughout I think scenes. It's, yeah, especially once you pick up on sort of yeah. the possible symbolism behind it. It makes Alejandro's character specifically seem that much more intriguing or I suppose strong because of course a lot of the characters in this film wear that more sandy, beigey type yeah. of clothing. And he's always got at least a that little bit of blue jacket on yeah. or something like that, despite the rest of it. And then, of course, at the end of the film, it's revealed that that's because he is actually a part of a different mob uh, mafia. And they he's here yeah. to, one, get revenge for the death of his family, and two, so that there is a drug trade that can be controlled in Mexico by... Yeah the the forces the american the forces. american government yeah or are at least influenced or persuaded mm-hmm. at the very least and i think it's even if not exactly overtly what that symbolism is supposed to mean it's a really nice way that this movie is still visually giving you hints yeah. to what's going on uh, th- even way 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 before it becomes pertinent yeah i think also just because there's so much use of yellow and sand, the sandy kind of brown that the blue is used more specifically to break up those colors so then it's not just a single palette. It is also and, a bit of a palette cleanser, and it's, yeah. It, well, not necessarily a palette cleanser because it doesn't alleviate us of the presence of the brown. It more just breaks it up so it's not all just brown. And I think that's fair enough, but also it's a really nice color to choose because the light pale blue is really nice and it works really well in later parts in the scene where we see the retaliation from their trip through Juarez where you get a nice big canvas of the sun setting sky which is mostly blue with little bits of red but the blue is the same kind of faded blue and it allows us to maintain the course with the color palette but then also gives us a very visually striking and visually stunning scene of what is mostly a pretty boring subject to people standing on a roof staring at through binoculars. But it's done so visually nicely that it still works out. Very fair. I, I gosh, it's honestly odd because usually in these in-depth discussions we have one or two nitpicks to bring up but I really can't think of any for this film except for in those first couple of minutes of course where I said I think in the review that those first three minutes were incredibly confronting and hard to digest for me yeah but even then I understand why they did it yeah and it was for a purpose it wasn't for shock value even though it did come across quite shocking it was to give us that sort of insight into how far these unseen assailants would go to protect their trade and then in a way justifies the path that our protagonists go down to stop them in the movie yeah absolutely but as we're on the subject of visual style i wanted to start to expand on the point on lighting because we've talked about color palette the color palette is beautiful the framing of this film is also really well done but also that's ultimately cinematography 101 you got to frame your scenes well and you got to frame them intentionally when it comes down to lighting that's where this 
film really shines. No pun intended. <laughs> but the lighting is very specific in that there's never really a point until later on in the film where anything is unlit or not illuminated. And specifically, one thing I wanted to point out is the presence of light provides an avenue for exploring greater detail and depth within the world. So on the two occasions where we actually see streaks of light or beams of light, not beams of light, yeah, I think streaks of light, so through the through the window in the opening scene and then from the projector in the debriefing scene, we see little particles of dust falling. And so it gives us this sense that there's never any point where the air is really clear and there's this just deeper sense of depth and and detail within the world where we see just this little beam of light and we're looking at it that's the kind of the only real thing in this shot but there are just little specks of dust falling and it, it gives this it gives this visual vibrance to the scenes that they're in that it also gives us a sense of the room yeah, I feel like it's really a testament to this film how well it sort of portrays the hot, dry, dusty yeah. climate without ever actually, you know, we're, we're watching a movie, we can't feel the heat. Yeah, no. We can't sort of feel the dust or, you know, how that would feel to be inhaling that sort of dusty air. But they do a really, really good job of making you feel how hot it is. Yeah. I think one of my thoughts, as we were discussing previously with the water cooler scene, was the fact that he takes the big jug of water, and my immediate thought, because of how well they set up that environment and that sort of arid climate, was, oh, he's going to waste all that nice cold water. Like, (laughs) I, I I didn't actually even get the sense that it was cold. I almost got this feeling that it was warm water, just based on the sense of the world, but... I know what you're saying. So in the daylight scenes, the specific effort to make the light almost overexposed, but not, but just to the point where it's it's just bright within scenes as opposed to being overexposed, helps deliver this kind of presence of heat and light within each scene. And it does that really well because the outdoor scenes seem hot and really warm and you get this sense that it's there because they're using this white exposed light ever present within the film and then when you're indoors the light is usually a tungsten yellow and as a result even indoors doesn't actually feel cool as a result Mm, and those couple of times that they don't use the yellow lighting indoors you get this really big sense of that these places may be air-conditioned or that it may be slightly yeah. cooler, which is really, really well done because well, obviously until we were talking about it, it wasn't something that was consciously on my mind. Yeah, no, that's fair. I was actually going to say the the whiter rooms and the lighter rooms or the more blue rooms, They actually, I feel like they almost, in one sense, the bar is probably the one example which I think probably provides a more cooler impression but then also the characters are like covered in sweat so there's also that sense that it's probably still quite hot but in the bathroom scene and the kitchen scene after Kate has just been strangled Mm. uh, I almost don't think it gives off a cool sense it gives off an almost sterile sense or a sterilized sense true I suppose I 
personally relate sterile or like hospital yeah with cool yeah that's fair usually just because there aren't a lot of windows and there's yeah there's probably there's definitely layers to that kind of sense yeah for sure so for me i immediately go oh it's cool toned because i've always associated medical sterile environments with cold environments because they usually are you walk into a doctor's office or into the hospital and it's usually a little cooler in there yeah by the nature of keeping specific things chilled or trying to keep heat down to control sickness i know that usually uh you're less likely to feel nausea when it's cooler so yes but with that said a lot of the light well within this film the light is used with a very clear purpose to make sure that characters faces are always illuminated and i will talk quickly about the end scene where it does the complete opposite where nothing is illuminated but everything that you need to know is still in frame but basically in silhouette and it's this very clear explanation or proof of concept that the film goes as you can see we've lit everything perfectly so you can see everybody's face as well you can see everything that's going on in the scene now we're going to flip it upside down and now nothing is lit but you can still see everything that you need to see and we guide or shepherd the the audience into seeing what we want them to see so that they understand what we want them to understand going into this point in the film. And it's really cleverly done and also must have taken painstaking work to ensure that that was done well. I've got to say, just talking about the end scenes and of course yeah. the silhouetting, the use of both night and heat vision in those sort of final scenes where we're jumping between being able to see a lot through heat vision, a moderate amount through night vision, and then just purely the silhouettes when we're looking at what it would look like against the little natural lighting of nighttime. It's so well done flipping between them, even though there are three very distinct visuals in those last scenes. It never feels like a harsh transition between any of those visuals. No, it's done really smoothly and thematically. But if we want to talk about the heat vision and night vision, we can get around to that. But I wanted to specifically continue talking about the light because the night vision and heat and thermal vision are more specifically the absence of light. Of course, of course. And I want to talk more broadly about the lighting of night scenes before this scene where everyone is still clearly seen. Uh, well, where everyone is still clearly visible and you can still get the details and the wonderful marks of humanity on people's faces. You know, the wrinkles, the scars, the, that kind of stuff where it actually adds this depth to a character and to a person. One thing I noticed was that it was often used, they used cars to project light, either the cabin light inside the car or the headlights. And I'm leading up to this point where we're going to lead up to my pointless research, but there's the scene in which they stop at the bus depot to question people who have been traveling across the borders through the buses and the bus system is a masterclass in lighting because we are introduced to the bus depot and the the cars are parked a little distance away. So there's actually almost a... 50 meter space of just pure darkness but while the headlights are on as the characters walk out they're still well lit 
but only when their faces are facing back towards the camera where the car is coming from. So the people talking are actually looking uh, looking in the direction of the camera, not looking at the camera, that's a big no-no in filmmaking, but they're looking towards the area of the camera so we can see their face as they talk. And then the headlights are turned off and the next frame we see of someone actually talking or er someone reacting is from the other side where we're in the bus depot and we get the light pushing on their faces from the bus depot. And it's incredibly nicely done because you almost get this feeling of isolation in this scene. But it leads yeah. me on to my pointless research, which I was slowly kind of like drawing us to as like the final point in the talk about light, is that the bus depot scene has this really interesting sense of space. With the use of lighting, it almost feels quite beautiful. It feels like, I know Roger Deakins would be quite unhappy with this point because he believes that if you make a film with beautiful parts in it, you haven't made a good film. You need to make a beautiful film all the way through, and then it will be a success. But this scene really stood out to me purely because it has the same sort of atmosphere as a petrol station at night. But what makes a petrol station at night beautiful, I think, is the question. And that's my pointless research for this week. So, actually, I found an a, a peer-reviewed journal article on why this is a thing. Why petrol stations at night have this otherworldly kind of beauty to them such niche information that you managed to find it's not niche it was actually this is the first time i've actually found a peer-reviewed journal article for the bullshit i'm about to spout <laughs> but the appeal of gas stations is due to multiple potentials but one of these is this sense of nostalgia at this lone petrol station in the night i think a lot of us who grew up with traveling holidays would probably know this image quite well ingrained in our minds of stopping at a petrol station at night and when you fill up and having this memory kind of ingrained but it also is a petrol station has this kind of timeless presentation where a lot of petrol stations look very similar i think that can be agreed especially at night when it's mostly lit in a certain way so the source of petrol station lights are incredibly intense for what they are so they'll actually they'll actually illuminate brighter than most lights and as a result they can be seen from quite a fair distance away and that's intentional because if you're out on the road and you're running out of petrol at night you'll want to be able to see a petrol station from afar so that you know that you're getting close to a place where you can refuel and because of that it actually has this almost timeless nature to it so having a strongly illuminated source that can be seen in a sea of dark has this almost sanctuary and safe aura to it, or safe atmosphere to it because of this sense, or this use of lighting. And I think that's why this scene stands out in an interesting way, because it it's this well-lit bus depot in the middle of a sea of darkness, a sea of night, as far as we can tell. So it almost has this sense of safety, whereas the truth is far from it, where this bus depot is just another path onto further danger within Juarez. And I find that incredibly interesting and satisfying as a cinematographer that this kind of scene exists. It is a really, really captivating scene. Yeah. The bus depot scene I love, even before you told me about the way that the lighting was done on the face. Yes. Just 
the visuals of all of those people sitting outside the buses waiting to be questioned before they can sort of leave, get back on the bus, whatever they're doing. It's really interesting imagery because for me, it invoked that sort of everybody sits on the ground waiting to go on a school trip with inherent danger and wrongness like the juxtaposition between what is usually seen as safety or comfort and what's actually happening yeah was so well done like it you're oh they're all sitting they're under the light it's like very well lit you feel safe but really this is not a safe place to be like they're getting of course there there's american police uh, or government yeah government questioning them to find a very specific very dangerous spot to carry out some very dangerous missions yeah with this overall sort of warm and fuzzy feeling that you get from that type of light it was it was really really well done yeah we'll jump on to the aspects of no light at this point it's probably going to be a smaller bit but the use of Thermal vision is really nice because it it provides us with detail where if we didn't have it, we wouldn't be able to see it at all. And for the the Dark Knight Raid scene, specifically what we're talking about, they use both thermal vision and night vision. But the interesting thing about it is that with the night vision, we actually don't get quite as much of the detail and it's a lot more just shapes and noise as opposed to with the thermal vision where we actually get that crisp detail. I think actually while we were watching the film, didn't you sort of get really excited? Because I went, oh, they're using thermal vision. Yes. And you were like, yes. Because most people, the thermal vision in this movie isn't coloured, it's black and white. So yeah. a lot of people might have mistook it for a type of night vision. But I sort of was just like, oh, thermal vision. And you got really excited. Because yeah. apparently that's not something that people pick. No, so usually, look, if, you, so if you're going to go with military style films... Usually they'll choose night vision because night vision is stylistic, it's it's well known, and as a result people can go, oh yeah, night vision is turning on, and you see it, like, you see the green, and the noise, and the, the images, like, the almost inverted colour s- spectrum for night vision. And a lot of people can recognise that quite easily. With thermal vision, it's a very different kind of style can be very easily mistaken for night vision but it actually has this really incredible effect that you still get a lot of the detail and then you also get heat signature in the film and so as a result you actually can still see the horizon in in the background because there's still heat emanating from the sun that's gone down quite a while back but then also one thing that i i just need to point out when they get inside that you see footprints stamped in blood And this was done specifically because it looked really cool, first off. But then this was done by a grip who heated up their shoes and stepped through the set prior to shooting so that we could still get that heat signature of boots passing through the blood. And as a result, it looks really cool and you get a good visual representation of something going on there. They didn't need to to add it, but the fact that they did add it makes that scene just so damn cool you stole my thunder i was gonna mention the the footsteps too they're just so visually striking yeah and i really like that they use both they don't just Mm. choose to use 
Well, they, yeah. Heat vision, they don't just choose to use night vision. They use them interchangeably to yeah. sort of show. Well, they do a mix of stylistic, the night vision, and then, yeah, and then practical, which is the thermal vision. One thing I also really liked is that when we look through Kate's perspective, she's in night vision, and as a result, when we get to the more well-lit areas of the tunnel, it starts to get blown out and overexposed. But then through yeah. thermal vision, we actually don't see the overexposed light of the tunnel bulbs because we only see the heat being emitted from the bulbs. And I think there's just such a cool little bit of continuity there, which, of course, it would not be a difficult thing to maintain because ultimately it's just two different formats of night vision, one being thermal vision, one being just night vision. But the fact that it's in there is just such a cool thing to see because you know that a lot of the light is actually being emitted from, well, is being registered from the heat that's being produced through thermal vision. And as a result, it's very, very cool. I don't think either of us could sing the praises of this movie's visuals enough. Like, you've yeah, heard no. us go on and this on This is and on about an it. incredibly <laughs> nice looking film. It and as a, a as a result, the film comes across as just really nicely, and of course it is really nicely done. It's a really good film. But yeah, definitely one that we would same. recommend watching. I think we've said multiple times as well. Yeah. I kind of want to skip ahead a little bit now sure, go ahead. and talk more about the end end of the film because obviously we were just speaking about the juxtaposition of safety versus danger. Yeah. And I actually had another thought on that of at the very very end when they're trying to get Kate to sign that document that says everything that they were done was done like in good faith or well it was done according so. to the law yeah yeah i don't know why i said in good faith but you know it was done legally yeah and she at first refuses to sign it at which point alejandro yeah. comforts her like you know he's like sort of wiping tears away from her cheek and then he pulls yeah. a gun but it, on yeah her. it almost comes across as an ex or as an excuse to get close to her to put a gun up to her chin yeah and yet i really love how in that moment until the gun is pulled obviously you know that he's going to threaten her like they need yeah. her to sign that message it's not something that they can just leave well enough alone and see yeah. what happens but i think one of the really good ways that they do this is again still keeping that sort of comforting feeling with him being like no shh, it's okay yeah don't worry just breathe but still being such a threatening figure i really really do like the way that this film manages to encapsulate feeling of being comforted by someone who you know wishes the best for you because it's been said prior in the film that Alejandro is a reminder of his daughter yeah. by Kate or I should phrase that Kate reminds him of his daughter so there's that comfort and that sort of compassion there but he's still doing what needs to be done and he's still threatening her for the good of the mission I suppose yeah, well, just to be able to get away with without Every strings attached or a paper trail, necessarily. It's not ne it's not about him getting away. It's about him not being impeded by any wall. bureaucratic red tape. Exactly. Yeah, and it's uh, so Benicio del Toro plays Alejandro, and it's such an interesting character because you are constantly given a sense that there's definitely more going on with him. He definitely has PTSD for something that we see right at the start when we first meet him. He has this presence of a very mysterious and elusive kind of figure who never fully answers questions. And 
is always quite vague about it, but you're also given a good sense of who he is. And in terms of in terms of his underlying humanity, we are given a good sense of that. We know exactly who he is as a man, but his purpose on Earth as a person is always in question. And I find that really, really interesting because mm. it's just... It's just good character writing, purely. Yeah, he's simultaneously incredibly mysterious and hard to pin down, and also yeah. one of the most reliable characters, I suppose. Sure, yeah. Which is interesting to say, considering the things that he does. But really, he is. Like, from a viewer's standpoint, from someone watching the movie, he's very reliable throughout the entire film. He doesn't... Yeah. And like we've said before, I think I said it in the review, Kate's morals don't change. Like, she goes through a couple very big moments where she's like, this is against the yeah, law, like, but her arc doing? remains quite stable. Her arc remains quite stable. Yeah. Alandra almost doesn't really have an arc. Like, of course no. he does, but like, he's he has a journey for sure, but he doesn't a have a journey, arc. but not an arc. There you yeah. go. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Like, he yeah. is the same person at the start of the film that he is at the end. He has completed his mission and what he set out to do by the end of the film, but he hasn't changed for it because obviously he's already had his defining, changing moment prior to the film in losing his family. Yeah. And so in completing what he needs to do to avenge them and, of course, put his cartel in place of the one that they just took down, it's he, he doesn't change. He stays completely the same. But by the end of the film, it's more apparent what his nature was i suppose it's quite funny we were talking about it and i don't know exactly how to word this because we weren't wording it particularly eloquently while we were talking about it but you almost get the shape like the outline of the type (laughs) of man that he is and how like pretty sure i didn't say type of man (laughs) i know exactly what you said well i'm trying to be kind of i i will talk i will (laughs) i will say this point because i brought it up and monique is being very good about making it as PG as possible. I said <laughs> this kind of character, we get a really good sense of the outline of his <laughs> of his bulge, <laughs> of, of his crotch. But then in the final scene, we see that he just has full-on big dick energy. Mm-hmm. That's what I was saying. Basically, yes. if we're not, you know, we're going to use the term that we used and it yeah. may not be eloquent, but it's accurate. What I was trying to say is you see the outline of the kind of man he is, but it doesn't yeah. really come into focus how much of a man he yeah, is exactly. until the sort of like end moments of the film. But yeah, sure, we'll just go out and yeah, put out got, that analogy. This character's got very strong big dick energy and then but you see it throughout the film and my analogy for that is just yeah, you could see his bulge throughout the film and then <laughs> bam, he's cock out, he's a badass, basically. <laughs> can't be can't be more simple than that. No. And uh, it was really, really well said, honestly, and that's why I was struggling. <laughs> well, no, to it say wasn't. It, it was. It wasn't well said. It's vulgar, but it gets the point across. Exactly. I mean, that's why. And it was I think, well in said, a sense, this you... film does the very same thing, which I think works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why we just had to include that <laughs> lovely analogy. Yeah. Because there's no other way to say it that would so succinctly say. Yeah, it's a difficult word. It's a difficult thing to encapsulate in words. Because can you really use words to to epitomize a character? No. (laughs) I've tried my best. It's not necessarily the kind of thing you talk about in a crowd of family, for sure. But ultimately, it does get the point across. 
and that's fine. The yeah, character it's a discussion the, with open-minded yeah. friends. <laughs> yeah, the characterization of all the characters is really, really good. I really wish that Daniel Kaluuya's character got a little more to do because Daniel Kaluuya is great. His character is also just really good as well. He's just such a facts spitten by the book kind of guy. And honestly, and he just works. As much as Reggie isn't in the film a lot, I yeah. enjoyed his dialogue the most because he just comes in and He's, you can immediately yeah. see the sort of friendship that he and Kate have together, like in the way that he speaks to her and a couple of the things that he says. Yeah. I think at one point Kate's changing before they go somewhere and he just flippantly says, we need to get you a new bra, like yeah. you're always wearing the same one. And she's like, yeah, like anybody's ever seen me in this bra besides you, you know, sort of flippantly like encapsulating the fact that they've been on this trip for a long time and she probably doesn't have a lot of spare clothes. Yeah. And she's very married to her job and he makes fun of her for it. Like it's such a good like it's a good, dialogue it's and a, I really yeah. like it. It's a good like chemistry that they have with each other where it's this friendship kind of chemistry. But... With all this said, I think we should probably lead towards wrapping up. Definitely. So, unless you have any final thoughts? Because mm, no. I, I think we kind of hit it on the head. You know, hit I the nail on the head in this My one. one final question for you. I yeah, do sure. want to know, what is your absolute favourite scene in this movie? I don't have a favourite scene because this film is beautiful all the way through. Yeah, like, I had like to Roger Deakins um, said. But no, ah, uh, yeah. Look, the bus depot scene is really atmospherically nice, but my favorite scene, arguably, is the border scene because it it is a masterclass in tension, writing, sound design, visual composition, and visual storytelling. It does everything right, and as a result, it's a really tense watch. Even however many times I've watched it through, it still remains this almost anxiety-building tense scene and that's that's a masterclass in film so exactly. that one probably that's been this week's episode of movie magpies i hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about sicario of course we will be back next week with another movie if you want to follow will or myself outside of our movie magpies podcast i'm nexatai on twitter and will is will underscore mortlock and gray mouse inc on both Twitter and Instagram, respectively. We're going to do another hint for the film we'll be watching next week. Our old hint was another visually striking film in which there are no true good guys, only very bad guys. Our new hint is another film where our female protagonist is dropped into a world they do not know and are left to tackle faceless foes. A <laughs> uh, little bit of rhyming there. Yeah, very, that's very awesome. Very proud world. of that one, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. I would actually really like you guys to leave a comment or find one of us on Twitter or Instagram and yeah. let us know, are you playing along with these hint games? Did you guess what any of the movies were? Hmm. I'd be I'd be very excited to hear. Yeah, please do guess. Let me let us know what your guesses are cuz I'm super excited about this one. It's I think this is one of the best hints that we've provided. It's really kind of fun. Hopefully. I'm so excited for yeah. our next guys you have no idea definitely give us some feedback let us know would you like us to give you the hint in a tweet the day before we post as well or do you like just having it in our in-depth review but with all that said i think we'll close out for this episode thank you all for listening see you next time